0: You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR, 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in.
1: 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
2: I love radio, radio show. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8:30am. Early double. Clap your <laughs>
3: Baby. 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 Baby.
1: Good morning, all. Good morning, morning, Judith. Good morning, Alice. Baby.
4: Morning Alice. Morning Jude. Morning Dean. I yeah. think we got
1: all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, just a quick update on the weather. Morning fog. Morning fog about the outer eastern suburbs. Otherwise, a sunny day with light winds in the uh, middle of the day. So a top of 17 and a low oh. of right now, which is. Seven. Yeah, is, <laughs> it's actually 6.5, but we won't go there. It's so cold outside. Yeah,
0: I was it's going really to say, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's going to be 17, but uh, yeah, yeah, the sun's yeah. going to be out in 17, that's a pretty... We're going to be optimistic. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I expect it will be. It
1: uh, and a low optimistic. chance of rain today, whereas tomorrow it's a 70% chance of rain and only a top of 13. So oh, then it's... Yeah, yeah
0: that will... Hopefully that we get... It and the weekend was, was like quite it. nice, wasn't yeah, it? 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 It was. The it was yeah. beautiful. And uh, it's the 17th of June today. Yes.
1: Yeah. Tell me about it. This the second day of Refugee Week 2019 too. Yeah, it started yesterday. Right. Um, Mm. We had was it reconciliation -Reconciliation last week? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So
0: yeah, lots on really this time of year, isn't there? Mm. Mm. So coming up on the show, we're I mean lots going on over the last week and the weekend as well, and we'll be looking at at some of those things, but. um, after 8, we're going to, or, well, actually, on 8, we'll speak, he'll be speaking with Matthew Carroll. He's a scientist who, with a group of other scientists, wrote a paper expressing concerns about the Adani's water management plan for the Carmichael mine. And, of course, uh, you, as you'll know, at the end of last week, that uh, plan was approved by the Queensland government. So uh, it's all systems go for Adani. We definitely will have to hear a bit from the black-throated Finch this morning, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> as a- and you. it's quite... Quite interesting
1: how quickly the news has been going on about now. I mean obviously it's been nine years for Darny, but they're ready to start work, essentially. You know, yes. they could start today.
4: Yeah, yeah I thought we had more time than this yes. I really wasn't expecting it When it when
0: I saw that on the news Well I th- I think we're still awaiting A, a high court case uh, mm. On the uh, land use agreement But I, I'll have to follow up and check on that But anyway, according to Matthew Curl They can go uh, He he and um, mm. one of his colleagues In the coming days, which is yeah, crazy yeah, at, at any at any moment now And um, he also points out that they Haven't really, they've the Danny has had Six years with advice, what they can do to improve their plan, water management plan, and basically have done very little. So, yeah, so we'll hear from Matthew after eight, and I think you've got, uh, you're have you going to be speaking with someone after eight as well.
4: Yeah, I'm going to be speaking to Shirley Winton from IPAN. Ah, yes. Yeah, and that's um, the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network about the Genoa dock workers strike in Italy back wow. in May. Okay. Um, and Genoa. Genoa. What, I mean, I say it wrong. This is just what... So how do we say... Genoa. 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 I'm
1: not Italian, Genoa. but yeah. I just watch their football team lose Oh, really? <laughs> it's okay.
4: amazing the information one gets from watching oh, I football. I know. Okay. Yeah. No. I know. My partner is crazy about football, and he knows everything. Like, all the teams, where they, they are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, oh, well, you have... yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you better... Oh, oh, they, out. I'll get yeah. it yeah. wrong again.
4: No, don't worry. No, don't worry about but that. But anyway, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's going to... Yeah, it's a really interesting story. So, Shirley's going to speak to us about that, and... The response that they've had and the developments after. Uh, that. this basically. is about the
0: export of Saudi weapons. Ami- this is um, yep. weapons, so, isn't yep. It? Yep. yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think
1: we were talking earlier before the show, um, Alice and I, that you know we we have so much action that happens within Australia that you forget that certain countries like France and Italy and some European countries also have movements like this happening because all we get is oh these people don't like refugees so we just sort of, and they probably get the same about us you know well i know yeah. uh,
0: actually i was speaking with someone recently who uh, was traveling abroad and s- telling me that uh, people do know about our refugee policy and they're horrified mm. really? so uh, yes i just can't remember which um country that person was in but nonetheless uh, yeah it is known it is known mm. and, so, yeah.
1: and before we announce the others um all the talk that we've done about the Umbrella Movement I think yeah, we've affected some change that we, over yeah, there
0: yeah. change <laughs> yeah well I mean she's, it's temporary the bill that mm. the you know, extradition mm. bill extradition to China for um, you know offences has been withdrawn temporarily mm. at least mm. which but is a start yeah, yeah. Yeah, so mm. so that's great news. Yeah, isn't great it? News. Yeah, but there were still demonstrations on the weekend. They really want Carrie Lam, who's head of the Legislative Council, to step down, and uh, that was the case during the Umbrella Movement as well. But she's not moving. But anyway, mm. good news. Good news. Good yeah. news. Yes, yeah. 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 yeah, that's great to have some good news. Um, Who else have we got in today? Greg oh. Denham
1: at seven thirty.
0: Yeah, Greg's coming in 7:30, and um, he'll, as usual, he talks about you know drug policy, but looking at Leap in particular and their newsletter, the latest newsletter, the June newsletter. So um, yeah, that'll be great. It's always great to have Greg in the studio. And uh, before that, we have uh, coming up after the music. Actually, uh, you will probably be aware that there was um, uh, 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 two tankers were fired on in the in the Gulf, Gulf of Oman. Uh-huh. Uh, I think Thursday, the same day that Adani approved the, the mine or the water, I'm um, not Adani approved, sorry, the Queensland government approved the Adani uh, water plan. So anyway, I trying to get to the bottom of issues in the Middle East is always a challenge. So the U.S. is saying Iran has done it. Iran is saying no, we haven't. Mm-hmm. So we'll hear more about and that. And the Saudis
1: it. and the Saudis woke up this morning and blamed Iran too. Which well, is, yes. yeah, quite a, another development, obviously, mm. in the story. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah no, well, about two hours f- ago though. That
0: Saudi Arabia's come out and said it was Iran attacking it. Well, of but. course they'll take the side of the U.S. <laughs> because you know that's um, that's where the sitting at the moment. Mm. So um, so anyway, um, I will be sp- be speaking with David Olney, who um, will look at what how he's seen it. And he's from um, a think tank that looks at global political issues. So that will be good too. Anything else?
4: Jam packed show.
1: No, yeah. yeah. Well, and it is as I mentioned, Refugee Week. Um, there is a launch today at Grubbin for Troy. We were going to try and speak to Flora Chol. Um, this morning, We haven't managed to get to to her. But we'll just touch a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's um, you know, and I think we uh, we know a lot about what happens to refugees, and we read a lot, and we know that there's a lot of campaigns, but um, the history of Refugee Week, and and I guess why it's around, would have been something quite nice to touch on, so um, the Refugee Council of Australia have their um, Share a Meal, Share a Story, and their theme for this year is A World of Stories, so I'll just touch a little bit on that 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 as well, and I've
0: got three
1: people who talk about their experience about their first week in Melbourne.
0: Oh, wow. That's brilliant. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to to start off kind of um, cool, I think, or cool in the sense of Coolsville (laughs) this morning (laughs) with the Ricky Lee Jones, (laughs) Danny's All-Star Joint.
1: in the back all day Hey there's cat there a bad kind of soup come
0: around my luck to my And that was Ricky Lee Jones with Danny's All-Star joint I think It was 1978-79 when that album came out, it was her first album and uh, the name of the album was just the same. her name, Ricky Lee Jones
1: ricky lee jones
0: i don't know much about ricky lee jones no i mean she i actually saw her a few years ago probably five years ago now in Adelaide, she's still touring Mm. but um this is really my favorite album of hers Mm. you know i've I've just uh, i've heard other i've heard bits and pieces of more recent but This was, yeah. Self
1: titled? Ricky Lee Jones, Ricky Lee Jones, yeah. 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 And They they don't do that anymore. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Not so much. It's
0: true. And um, I guess the, the other song that's well known is the first one, which is Chuck E's in Love. Chuckie's in love. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows that song, sure. <laughs> That's why we have DJ sing for us. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, last Thursday, June 13th, two oil tankers were attacked. And I'm sure you've all been aware of that near the Strait of Hormuz while crossing the Gulf of Oman. U.S. President Donald Trump was quick to blame Iran. Very quick, very quick, actually, (laughs) accusing the country of attaching limpet mines to the boats. But then that idea has been challenged because the operator of the Japanese tanker that was hit says he saw flying objects in the air before his ship was attacked. And um, and the Iranians have denied any responsibility at all. So you're kind of what's going on. So I tried. I want to find out more. And on Friday, I spoke with David Olney, who's a senior analyst at Sage International Australia, which is an independent think tank that conducts research on global and political issues. And I began by just asking him if he was surprised when he heard the attacks. So um, not really
5: surprised the United States are going to keep pushing Iran into a potentially smaller and smaller corner. It's more and more likely that they will have to find a way to react to try and reduce pressure on them. And that if it's not the Iranians who've done it, then there's plenty of people at the moment who would seemingly want to make the Iranians look like they're guilty in order to apply more pressure to them.
0: Even though the US is accusing Iran of the attacks, That's really quite questionable.
5: Yes, there is no absolute evidence that it's Iran. So the question is, is it Iran or is it someone wanting to make us believe it's Iran? So it might be in the Israeli interest for the world to believe it's Iran because then the Americans can apply more pressure. So part of the problem is that hanging a limpet mine on a tanker, limpet mines can be similar, can be different, and all we have at the moment is an American photo of a mine supposedly that did not detonate on one of the ships, that looks a lot like mines that the Iranians used in the 1980s. Now, limpet mines as a technology were developed in World War II by a a brilliant engineer, Boffin, with essentially parts from the hardware store and first tested in his local swimming pool. So there's nothing very complicated about a limpet mine.
0: So the evidence that the U.S. is presenting at the moment, we can't be very confident in it.
5: What I would argue at the moment is they're not presenting evidence. They're priming us. If they keep saying the word Iran in every sentence, then we will attach bombings or explosions in the Straits of Hormuz with Iran must have done it simply by the priming. It's a good social psychological trick, but it's not evidence.
0: I mean, it does seem like it's not in Iran's interest to look for a war with the United States. It's the U.S., that's uh, using the aggressive language, Yeah, and this would Uh, be in their interest to have this happen. Are there groups in the Gulf that would uh, do this on behalf of the U.S.? Well, if we look at
5: the Gulf states at the moment, they've had long-term problems amongst themselves, particularly with Qatar, so they're very much wrapped up in their own mayhem. We've had the UAE and Saudi Arabia involved in Yemen for an extended time, and demonstrating that they're not really capable of sophisticated military operations. So trying to work out which group might do it to support the Americans. We need to start thinking in a new way of war. It might be outsourced to a small player on the periphery. The Arab world certainly doesn't want a stronger arm, but in the main, the Arab world don't do very well using military force against other militaries or other countries.
0: Say some other group has done this. Some group we don't know, we can identify. What motivations would they have?
5: In the long run, either they want you know, the Iranians or the Americans on their side, depending who's done it. They want access to military resources. They want access to cash. They want favours. This is the point we're talking about a part of the world where things traditionally weren't done up front by national armies versus national armies. This is a place of outsourcing and quiet small things on the periphery. Why have a battle that destroys a year's worth of GDP in equipment when you can just blow up some tankers and disrupt the global economy?
0: Yes, and that's David Olney. We'll hear from him again in a moment, but... uh I, you know, he just points out how complicated things are in the Middle East and really how difficult it is to get to, to the bottom of who's doing what. But certainly the attacks did affect the global economy because the price of oil went up mm. almost immediately with with the risk of, you know, trouble mm. and oil getting out through the Straits of Hormuz. So.
4: And um – just because I don't know that much about the Middle East, like who, who controls that oil, the, the oil that…
0: A lot of the attacked? oil is Saudi oil that mm. comes out there mm. uh, in particular. And as far as the, the, the traffic through that area, the U.S., I think, since the war in Iraq has kind of undertaken to keep that area free so that oil can, can go through. Mm. Mm.
4: So would it be in their best
0: intentions for the oil price to go up? Well, that's always a question, isn't mm. it? And I mean, as soon as you start looking, so, yeah, many, so many questions come yeah. about, don't they? They come out. And the thing that makes me wonder whether um Iran did it was that um, at the very time, the very moment that this was happening, and one of the ships was owned by Japan, although the crew would have been, you know, people from all over, as so is the case with ships, it was not joined, so it was owned, owned by Japan. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was visiting Tehran, have talks to try and reduce the tensions between the US and Iran. So it just seems odd to me that Iran that would Iran invite would do, yeah. Shinzo Abe there and say and just watch us blow up mm. <laughs> a Japanese <laughs> boat. I mean that just seems uh, but you know uh, again uh, who
1: knows. Mm. Uh, and especially with reports I think you were saying earlier that some of the, the tankers crew members appeared to contradict the assertion that mines were used you know they describe seeing flying objects as having targeted the vessel
0: that's right yeah Um, Yeah.
1: and hopefully we're not that it's not that sort of moon landing conspiracy theory that they doctored this video this black and white video that's just come out saying well hang on yes and the other
0: thing is they're saying that these are like the the mines that iran used in the 1980s No, iran is a very sophisticated country militarily um, it also seems a bit odd if they're going to do this that they would use. Very old technology. Yeah, it just seems weird. And, and David only will speak again about the mines, you know, or, no, sorry, he has spoken about, yeah, the mines, uh, the limpid minds. So then I, of course, I think the world is a bit on edge and on, and concerned about this. So I'm just um, – I wanted to know, what, you know whether he felt that this would lead to a conflict or, you know, if there it does, you know, you know, how would the world be affected – or the Middle East, how would the Middle East and the world be affected?
5: Well, let, let's jump back and use a historical example. During the Iran-Iraq War, the Americans had to arrange convoys through the Straits of Hormuz to get ships through. So we will go back to having a greater American military presence, potentially, in the region moving shipping through, which will either improve the situation or will inflame tensions further between the U.S. and Iran. So it seems to me what we're on is a path where the Americans will have to be more involved and the more involved they become, potentially, greater the risk of Iran and the U.S. misjudging or misstepping and there being an exchange of fire between the two countries rather than just some, you know, bolt tankers being blown up by...
0: What would be the impact on the world?
5: Any time you disrupt, uh, you know, petroleum moving around, you create problems, but we've got to remember that the Russians still produce lots of petroleum products and they move around the world in different directions. As much as this is highly disruptive, there is potential to get around it. So for example, China has more and more pipelines it's building. So in the long run, these straits are important, but every year that passes, we will have other ways of moving energy around.
0: I understand a lot of Saudi oil goes out through the Straits of Hormuz, so it wouldn't be in Saudi's interest at all for a war, I wouldn't think.
5: No, because for them it would make it very difficult to export oil, and yet in the same moment they want a less powerful Iran. So if they have to sacrifice ease of transiting oil for reducing Iran's influence in the region, that's a calculation that they would have to you know, make very carefully, but my guess is they would probably go for reducing Iran's power and mm. missing out on income for a while.
0: How much is this related, do you think, to old feuds between Sunni Islam, which would of course be Saudi Arabia, and Shia Islam, which is Iran?
5: I think we can say that there's you know, long-term issues and problems between sects of Islam, but also it's that the Saudis have been close to the Americans for a long time, The Iranians were close to the Americans until 1979 with the revolution. So we've got a situation here that probably neither side trusts the Americans. Saudis probably wish they didn't have to rely on and engage with the Americans. But it's more about power over the region. The Iranians would love to be very powerful in the region. Being Shia, that is more difficult. But also being Persian makes that more difficult. We would think that there could be unity in the Arab world, but there's not going to be unity in the Arab world because a proportion of it is Sunni, a proportion is Shia, and a smaller proportion, again, is Sufi.
0: Oh, it's such a complex region, isn't it? I mean, so much It's essentially
5: a mess on top of a mess on top of a mess, and because there's oil there, it's a valuable mess. The best thing possible for the Middle East would be that oil suddenly is irrelevant so that we didn't have a reason to interfere anymore.
0: If a war does happen between the U.S. and Iran, what are the chances of Australia going to war?
5: We regularly get involved in American adventures so that we maintain access to intelligence and military equipment and technology. A war with Iran would probably initially be a naval and air assault, take a port, perhaps get a bridgehead, and then discover that trying to control Iran would make Iraq and Afghanistan combined look pleasant. We wouldn't be organised early enough to be part of the naval and air assault, and we would hopefully not be called upon to support any kind of occupation of Iranian space, because I think it would be an infinitely bloodier war with an infinitely more sophisticated enemy than even Iraq or Afghanistan had been.
0: This does have the feeling, to me, of the weapons of mass destruction fiasco that um, people all went along with.
5: Precisely. It feels an awful lot like 2003. That build-up was just full of smoke and mirrors, cost an immense amount of lives, an immense amount of suffering, an immense amount of money for no gain. My warning would want to be, be careful what you wish for, Washington, because there is such a risk of this looking like 2003 to 2009 in Iraq, but worse. Don't do it.
0: Wouldn't you think Australia and Britain have learned their lesson from 2003?
5: I think what Australia and Britain know is that we live in a dangerous world, and particularly in Australia's case, we feel like we're at sea, in a sense, in the world without a very big ally. Historically, we don't know how to function without a significant ally. We went from the British Empire to America because... Churchill, you know, abandoned us to our lot. Yes. So we grabbed hold of the Americans, and as much as we've built better relationships with our neighbourhood and we're beginning to understand our bit of the world better, we still seem to need to balance this with having the theoretical support of one of the world's superpowers, well, the only superpower at the moment, and I'm not sure we're going to grow out of that need any time soon because we've been habituated to that being part of our strategic view for too many decades
0: and that was David Olney Senior Analyst at Sage International Australia and I spoke to him on Friday uh, and the Sage International is an independent think tank that conducts research on global and political issues so it was great to have a chance to speak to David because uh, I know he's pretty busy and with all these kinds of developments you can imagine that they, you know they're keeping an eye on mm. things
4: yeah, yeah I'd love to have him back and Speak about it, speak to him again in a couple of weeks
0: and see what other developments. Yeah, and he's willing, that. he's happy to do that. So that would be great. Yeah, um, yes, but anyway, I mean, he did say that uh, if there's something big changed on the weekend, and I think Dean's pointed out that Saudis come on and saying yes, you know, Iran has done it, but mm. that that wasn't, I thought, big enough to call him in the middle, of, you know, <laughs> middle of <laughs> the morning. It's, it's, you got to get in the a, studio. So it's <laughs> a,
1: it's a good op- it's a good sort of uh, opportunity for Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman who's come out and said that we won't hesitate to tackle any threats because, obviously, you know, last year he was mired in controversy over claims that he ordered the murder of a Washington Post journalist. I think
0: that's still the... Mm. Yeah, Mm. I think that's still... Well, uh, you know, could distract that from
1: that at the moment if he gets himself sure. involved, you know.
0: But it was interesting what David said that yes, they will if if a war breaks out, they will uh, Saudi will um, lose some cash through you know yeah. the, interrupting the, yeah. the flow of oil, but they might be willing to to lose that. Uh, take it here. yeah. Take yeah. a hit. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, to yeah, get to get yeah, back it's in It's a tax write-off for those guys. Yeah. And we have spoken to people, you know, who are looking at, at Iran and these, and you know, of course, there's movements in Iran also to liberalize, and this kind of thing just pushes Iran uh, back into the, the hands of the conservatives. So mm. none of this is good news uh, at all. Anyway, yes, we'll definitely we'll definitely follow that story, and we're still a little now just just a shift. <laughs> are we still a little bit in radiothon? Thought- mode. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. yes. Mm-hmm. For the
4: listeners who were perhaps laying in bed last week and didn't make it to uh, <laughs> didn't Monday call their break. donations into We still have time. Oh, nine four
1: yeah. one nine eight three seven seven. Um and before the end of the financial year. So last week really was all about pledging and this week it's about paying up for those who um you know, who meant to pledge and didn't um, have a chance to have their calls taken or didn't get the time to do it, we know you're always listening. So nine four one nine eight three seven seven, or you can go on 3cr.org. Donate you or you can come to
0: twenty one Smith Street, Collingwood. And oh, that's yeah. lots of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we'd love you to come yeah. in and you know get yourself two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, yeah. get a patch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're and
4: halfway there. So we yeah. made five hundred. Five hundred yeah. dollars. We've yeah. got another five hundred to, to go. go. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And let and, them and know big that big Monday thanks, breakfast hey, is big yours. Thanks
0: to all the people who did donate yes. last week, by the yes. way. Yeah, that oh, was fantastic. That's yeah. list, but um
1: yeah. Especially the the Goulds from the UK. Thank you. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> John and yeah. Jenny. All our yeah. all
0: our loved ones. I'm going to try to get some Canadians in yeah. on yeah. this oh, There was, a, I
1: mean, there was it. a young Canadian lady who donated last week.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there was too. Yeah. Yeah. There was too. <laughs> we might go to a few community announcements and be back with our next guest, Greg Denham.
3: Our people is not a stagnant part of Australian history. This is happening right here today.
6: And corporations have gotten away with poisoning us. It's
4: this assumption that white people and people of white bodies are right until something goes wrong. To resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. Support radical voices on the airwaves. Donate to 3CR's annual fundraiser, Power Radical Radio, June 3rd to the 16th.
1: 5
0: and we're back in, with Greg Denham in the studio which is even nicer it's great have people come in the studio Greg we really appreciate it thank, oh, you. Well, thank
1: you for the and then we actually never left sorry <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it
0: sounded like we'd gone no, somewhere no we, did, we didn't leave no we were here we were just kind of grooving to Baker Boy <laughs>
7: Baker Boy yeah
0: cool as hell and I hope you approved of that music Greg.
7: I do actually. I um <clears throat> quite like um basically anything that sounds good. So um, <laughs> that's my that's my criteria. And uh, as um I'm getting older, I do tend to be a bit more sort of selective around my music. But um no, I like that. That was quite good for this yeah. time of the morning
0: I say this because uh, there was one time when Greg uh, mentioned specifically he wasn't keen on whatever music I played but he's forgotten because it it's so p- <laughs> pat- you clearly <laughs> haven't forgotten that you but you? I no. something that's no. No. You. and you might get over it one day <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I don't know,
4: Greg. <laughs> anyway, well, I think she talks
0: bro- about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. When you're not here, you're not i got to get the right music if Greg's coming in. <laughs> okay, let me introduce Greg Denham. Who is he, if you're out there wondering? So, Greg's been involved in drug policy for over 25 years, ago, a friend of 3CR because you, you were on in psychedelia just yesterday, and you've been on before and on our mm-hmm. breakfast mm-hmm. programs before as well. You're former police officer with local, national, international experience in harm reduction and you're a strong advocate for evidence-informed policy and practice. So, Greg, you've come in this morning to talk about the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, known as LEAP, uh, which is an international group of police officers uh, and other members of the criminal justice system who speak out against the war on drugs. But I'm wondering, just to start, what insights do, do police officers or former police people or people in the justice system have uh, in particular around um, drug policy. What does what the police person, former police person, have you seen or your colleagues seen that have taken you to this place? Well,
7: I guess if you go back... Um About two decades, um, particularly during the mid to late 90s, um, when there was a lot of heroin around Melbourne and we saw the impact of um, overdose deaths as we are seeing today, Um, I think a lot of people started to question that sort of war on drugs approach. And a lot of a lot of people were were um, dying from from heroin overdoses, and we built up this bit of momentum around you know uh, the need for looking at the drug issue differently. Unfortunately, um, in the early two thousands, we had a swing back the other way, a very conservative um, approach, particularly through John Howard, and uh, and that's kind of been um, the approach over the last fifteen years. Um, it was around um, early 2000s that I heard about a group in the United States called Leap. Um, and there was um, a guy called Jack Cole, who was a former former undercover cop, who was saying, this isn't really working. And what I could see happening is that Australia was going very much down the line of the United States. You know, very conservative approach towards illicit drugs. Um, you know, more police, more laws, um, greater powers, um, you know, n- more people in prison. And um, I started to get involved. I started to talk to a number of people and it's kind of been bubbling away back in the background because I think police see the worst as far as, you know, drug use. and I impact mean, of that, drug that's use what I was concerned. going to say. It
0: feels like, you know, the police are the kind of the front line mm. in the war on drugs. I mean, the police the people charged with carrying out mm. the war in a way.
7: Yeah, many police disagree with what's happening. There are many police out there who will say, oh, it's not working, you know, we this is just ridiculous, you know, the, the, um, the way in which we're going with this. Because every time that we kind of, you know, have a seizure, a drug seizure, um, whether it be ice or um, heroin, you know, there's a displacement effect to another drug or the price of that drug goes up and the purity goes down, which people... Which means people use more, um, and, in, and for a small number of people that do commit crime to kind of feed their habit, and that's only a small number of people. Um, you know, they commit more crime because they need to use the drug more often. So police see this, and police have been questioning not only in America but also the UK, parts of Europe. Uh, the number of police are starting to say, "Hang on, this isn't working. We've been doing this for a long time. You know, we we keep having these seizures. You know, yes, of these I was going to say
0: those, all those celebratory photographs that's in the right. newspaper. That's right. Yay, we did it." We yeah. Got yes. this. And in fact, it really means nothing from what you're saying.
7: Well, it means very little. And uh, in fact, if you uh, looked at the, the, um, the seizures, you will find if you track the seizures that, um, as I said before, that are all that happens is there's a displacement effect, you know, that, that someone else will come up with um, another type of drug or another you know, another way of um, synthesising or manufacturing a drug um, which is um, more, um, maybe in some, some instances, more powerful and more potentially deadly, such as fentanyl in the United yes. States. So, and and, and we, Canada
0: too, fentanyl. Yeah, Canada. So huge, Canada is having a yeah.
7: massive impact. So we saw this during alcohol prohibition during the 1920s. When prohibition came in, what happened was that the beard wasn't produced it was very concentrated, very powerful forms of alcohol, um, so we 're seeing the same thing again we don't we don 't learn from history, and uh, we just keep on sort of hitting our head against the wall, hoping for a different result mm.
0: and, and you mentioned that um, you know a lot of police uh, see the the uh, fallacy if you like, or the uselessness of the war on drugs, but are there some police that see it as a, an employment program for police like a make work arrangement for police of course yeah that's
7: right you know if you looked at uh, uh, you know, the war on drugs and drug prohibition. You know, police make a lot out of this. You know, they get um, extra resources, extra powers, um, high degree of job satisfaction. <coughs> that leads to, in many cases, particularly, you know, if you get more arrests, you get chances of promotion and, and recognition
1: and, uh, oh you know...
7: Uh, I mean, that's, that's
0: really scary. It's like yeah. getting money for the number of uh, people you stop with your car or yeah. alcohol. Yeah.
1: And, and I guess the opportunity then for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, though, is for police to make a difference and become um, agents of change because then they're serving the communities that they're in instead of actually going down that hard line, there's an opportunity and a chance to form relationships, build them, understand what people need on the ground.
7: Yeah, of course, that's right, and that's what it's about. It used to be called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and in the United States in particular, um, they decided that whilst they will have a focus on ending the war on drugs they also recognize too that they needed to address the underlying issues that are driving the war on drugs and particularly driving police responses such as racism and, and a whole and and particularly um, y- you know young people being a focus of uh, policing um, people who are disadvantaged um, you know low socioeconomic living on the street so this is why they changed the name from um, against prohibition oh, sure. to action partnerships because it was about working with those agencies and organisations that were also addressing the underlying drivers of the war on
0: drugs. So really it's expanded yeah, in that right. sense. Yeah, that's right. It's and expanded It's good. Yeah. Still. still LEAP? Still but, leap, still yeah, leap. Yeah, yeah. not
7: everyone agreed with that. Not everyone agreed with the, the change. In fact, I know in the United States it did cause a bit of a division. So, and my focus is always on <clears throat> ending the war on drugs. And my, I guess my purpose. And there's a bit, bit of flexibility in this. And, and Neil Woods from the UK, who's um, a former undercover detective who is driving uh, the UK leap. Uh, we're pretty sort of much on the same, you know, frame of mind as far as LEAP, it's, it's ending drug prohibition and legalising mm. all drugs. So we mm. want to legalise all drugs. And it sounds better with action partnership than against
1: prohibition <laughs> too, because it's a holistic yeah. sort of sounding Yeah, line. it's inclusive.
2: Yeah. yeah. Sure.
0: So, and speaking of, looking at, you know, the role of police, I know that when uh, Portugal decriminalised all drugs, I think it was back in 2001. Um, the police were part of that move to decriminalise. Am I right about that, Greg?
7: Sure. Certainly at the highest level. Um, there are certain, certainly police at the ground level who still say, "Oh, you know, we've still got people who are trafficking drugs, selling drugs." You know. Um, so, but at the highest level, there was a consensus around, um, you know, the fact that we needed to change what we were doing because. Um, Portugal found out that a significant amount of um, government funding was being put towards um, policing and, and prisons. And uh, you know, at that particular time, Portugal had just had a massive change in terms of its political environment, and they were broke. And so they said, look, what we need to do is, you know, they did something really strange. They called in experts, listened to experts, and they implemented the stuff that experts do, yeah. which, which yeah. you know, we it's a really a novel approach towards problem solving. Um, <laughs> Looking at the evidence. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. It was kind of, wow, you know, they're actually doing yeah. what they say they're going to do. So, um, yeah, so um, so implementing this basically was a way of um, not only saving money but also a human rights issue because there had been severe human rights issues in Portugal for quite some time and uh, they put the money that they saved from the criminal justice system into education and health treatment programs. And now with, with um, Portugal, um, you know... If you get caught by the police with a small amount of a a drug, um, you go to a dissuasion panel. And basically, the dissuasion panel looks at you and says, Well, okay, what have you been doing? Goes, Well, you know, I've been using a bit of cocaine and I quite enjoy it. So, well, okay, these are the harms from cocaine. Be careful.
0: Go on your way. So, um, and that's it. So and I understand if there's deeper problems they all have networks of people who help people get jobs, housing, like yeah. they provide a whole social kind yeah. of wrap around network.
7: Yeah, that's right. They do. They they link people into those types of programs. Because as we know, we focus so much on the drug, but rarely do we actually look at the person and the person's issues. So and of course of course not all drug use is problematic drug use you know in fact it's only a small number of people that do have issues with their drug use the majority of people that use illicit drugs actually don't have a problem with their drug use um but unfortunately no no that's right exactly you know that's right because um you know the the without sort of um you know uh kind of going into too much detail but you know we we know that there are significant numbers of people that you for example use cocaine Mm. and uh and that the people that use cocaine are generally people who are um, uh, wealthy, um, have good incomes, you know, yeah,
1: jobs, you know, know,
7: all that sort of stuff. Politicians, lawyers, (laughs) lawyers, stockbrokers, all those, yeah. And, and, you know, as you say, it's out out of the public view. So a lot of policing is around that public view. So that's that's one of the issues I think a lot of police, um, I guess, uh, disagree with, is that we tend to sort of... You know, police tend to sort of focus on that public view, which is often about the disadvantaged people yeah. or the easy targets, the low-hanging yeah. fruit.
0: Mm. I mean, I do want to um, talk a bit about to the extent that the war on drugs is actually a war on the poor and, and you know, people of colour. And uh, But just before we do that... Um, Portugal decriminalised, and I noticed just a few minutes ago you talked about uh, legalising drugs. So maybe you could explain the difference between the two and then why you you think legalisation is the way to go.
7: So um, decriminalisation is, as I said it, um, it's about... Police um, and the courts um, recognising that um, there will not be any criminal offences for certain drug offences, which in most cases is the use and possession for personal um, purposes. It doesn't eliminate trafficking, that type of thing. So they're criminal offences, but use and possession is decriminalised. There's no criminal offences. Police can't prosecute you for those offences. Legalisation is similar to what's happening in Canada at the moment with cannabis. So the production um, manufacture... Of drugs um, is conducted in such a way that you can legally through a series of processes obtain that drug so and that would include things like heroin, cannabis, uh, methamphetamine ecstasy um, and and those types of substances so you you would develop a bit of a process a policy process. Um, a regulation and control process around accessing those drugs so obviously with some drugs you would need to be quite restrictive you need to have some processes around you know okay uh, you just can't walk into a shop and say look I'll have you know a gram of meth or something like that so you you'd need to have a process where that person be, maybe became registered they may need to go to a, a doctor or some kind of you know clinical sort of process to get a registration registration for purchasing and then that person would go through an application to purchase which, which kind of
0: takes some of the glamour out of it does yeah it? Hmm. it does,
7: it does, and and look it, it's I guess with drug use there's no perfect system. you have yeah. need to acknowledge, but we say, okay, what are the harms that we are reducing, yeah what are the harms that we're going to reduce? We know there are significant harms at the moment, and one of the harms that we don't talk about is the the um i guess the influence and the impact of the the illicit drug market in terms of those that are actually managing the illicit drug market and i'm saying that quite nicely but the people that are running the drug market are very nice people you know they shoot people and they burn people's houses down and they burn people's cars and they drive past nightclubs and shoot people outside of nightclubs and they do standover things and they murder people and this type of thing so you know it's pretty it's a pretty violent uh, market and uh, there's a lot of money to be made and they ensure that they look after that market.
0: Yeah, so, so when... when uh, I mean, it's funny, I'm, I always make this connection. Whenever I hear a politician argue that we should maintain prohibition, I wonder whose pockets they're in. Now, that, I know that's... I mean, who's paying them off? Because clearly it's criminal inter, I mean, criminal people, criminals, and their organizations that benefit from this prohibition policy. So I always speculate. I want to write a play about it. I think <laughs> what's going on,
7: you know? Yeah, and, and again, going back through history, and if you um, read um, um, Neil, Neil Wood's book, Good Cop, Bad War... Um, he will go through how, um, in particularly during um, alcohol prohibition, the same set of circumstances, you know, were in terms of the um, alcohol prohibition. The people that, um, I guess, ran the, the speakeasies and places like that, I can't remember what they were called, but, you know, those types of underground alcohol outlets, they were extremely violent people. Mm. You know, they, yeah. they ruled... Um, in, in, with With sort of such savage violence, um, and Neil will also tell you about the u k what what the u k drug traffickers do to people um, in terms of you know the the way in which they enforce their sort of rules around um, you know particularly speaking to the police or getting involved with the police, you know if the threats and the actual physical harm that was was done to people, if they suspected that they were involved with the police is just it's just shocking, it's horrendous and it's a it's a great book to read to give you some perspective about the failed war on mm. drugs. he Neil talks about um, working for seventeen years as an undercover cop in the UK. And he believes that in that 17 years, he thinks he managed to stop the heroin trade for 12 hours in oh total.
0: <laughs> so what? tell me the <laughs> name. sorry, wow. sorry um, What was the name of the person in the name of the book again?
1: Uh, it's called Good Cop, Bad War. Neil Woods. We're speaking to um, Greg Denham mm. at the moment. And, and I think you touched on... Um, before judith when you sort of talked about that it it doesn't make it attractive and then you would have other people you know you're talking about a register people being able to go in maybe get a prescription people who might say well i don't really want to be on a register where people can access my documents because you know people are not getting jobs because they've got tattoos will i be discriminated against it's a pretty small price to pay when you compare it to being your house bombed or shot at because you're not paying some kind of a bill that you have But you've got a drug problem. Yeah.
7: Yeah. yeah. Look. And look. I look again. It's most of the stuff that's coming through um, about this is from. agencies in the UK like Transform and Release and others that are so, sort of International Drug Policy Consortium. Um, but look, it is it is about a balance. It is about, you know, weighing up what is what is the, um, the I guess, the, the, the negative impact of yeah. something that we're prepared to pay. What are we prepared to do? Um, and I look at Canada, for example, and Canada, you know, um, has legalised um, cannabis. Yeah. Um, and look, we're yet to see the ongoing sort of results from that. Um, but um, but we're not even starting, which is
1: really the most concerning. We're not even having a conversation. Yeah. So if we can get to a point where we have to find a balance, it it's great. Because yeah. at the moment, yeah. it's all one-sided, yeah. isn't
7: it? Yeah, yeah. I
0: do think Fiona Patton has started a conversation mm. about legalising cannabis, but she didn't get much take on that from no. her yeah. colleagues in Parliament.
7: No. And uh, look, you know in in terms of the political issues you know that that's always challenging you know about oh, being a politician, yeah. and having a particular view about. You know a particular um, you know policy change and and look I think she's done very very well we've got oh, um,
0: absolutely absolutely yeah. I mean she's a breath of fresh air yeah and and she you know listens also to her parliamentary colleagues and she says yeah look yeah. this isn't going to go now but there's other things we can do
7: yeah that's right yeah. and and mm. you know some of the um, you know some of her efforts around particularly dying with dignity and the supervising yeah. dicking facility in, in North Richmond you know these these sort of policy changes take time and uh, you know we've had over 20 years of very um, conservative um, uh, views about drug policy, and you know the the polit- politicians have used the war on drugs as a political tool. There's a lot of benefits, you know, in terms of yeah. the you know the Get war on drugs. Get your face
0: in the paper.
7: Exactly, and you can yeah. always say you're doing something about it. You know, yeah. it's it's responding in a in a way in which um, quite a few um, people in in the community kind of expect. But we need to change that narrative. We need to change the conversation. And one of the things that I'd like to see. Is police getting up and saying, "Look, I agree. You know this isn't working. You know let's change this approach." So they are in the UK. You know the, there are a number of chief constables who are saying, "You know what? We need to treat this as a health issue. You know this is this kind of law enforcement sort of them up approach isn't working. You know we need to we need to change this." We don't seem to have the same kind of freedom uh, here with police. They don't seem to be, or they're reluctant to talk out about, you know, things that aren't working. Um, And I think that's because they're very um, controlled by by the politicians. So they're very controlled, you know, they're they're very restricted. Uh, So former police, former um, judges um, people like mick palmer former federal police officer um, are starting to say look this isn't working you know we need to do something about it so we need to get ex-police it'd be good to get some current police talking about it as well
1: yeah. it's very I, socially I, destructive isn't it some of the policies
7: oh yes absolutely yeah. you know um i i you know i worked you know quite extensively down in north richmond as you know and uh i go down there quite a lot and uh, you know People are talking about the injecting room and, and you know and how successful it is, but no one has actually said, well, why do we have hundreds of people going down there who are chronically dependent on heroin, who are you know homeless, um, mm. unemployed, have um, mental health issues, you know, no one's asking those questions. No one's no one's saying. Oh, all we're always talking about at the moment is whether or not the injecting room is working or not. Yeah. Let's have some broader conversations about why we have so many people that are in that position where, you know, they, 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 they um have to go down there and score, you know, every few days. Um and yet we've just spent you know, one point eight billion dollars through the state budget on a new prison down at down at Geelong. so yes,
0: and that actually brings me to the um the the what I mentioned earlier about to what extent is it a war on the poor and people of color and uh, and that was kind of the topic in the leap newsletter, the last one that came out I think in June, june seventh mm-hmm. around well that, that's my date anyway, but uh, <laughs> it is the June it was it said it was the June letter right. uh, newsletter and um it, it there was the the lead article was uh, around what's going on in the UK, in fact, and, and about the prisons and the prison industrial complex. So uh, I'm just, and, and the need to close prisons, in fact. So I'm wondering mm. if you could just say a little bit about that.
7: Well, in many countries, they are closing prisons. I think in the Scandinavian countries, um, you know, Netherlands and places like that, they're starting to um, close their prisons. And one of the reasons is, is that they're decided that they're going to focus on the most disadvantaged people in the community and actually provide them with social welfare health programs that help to address the issues, the drivers drivers of crime. So certainly disadvantage, um, you know, and um, you know, lack of education opportunities, um, health um, issues. They're are all drivers of um, you know um, disadvantage, and and in many cases um, problematic drug use. So um, you know, many many countries are closing them down. We seem to just be building more and more prisons, and I think Australia has one of the highest rates. Particularly Victoria has one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world. And We've doubled our prisoner numbers over the last five years.
0: I mean, I, I find wow. that I find that incredible because Victoria generally is considered a much more uh, you know left-wing state. So mm. this mm. just doesn't go together. I mean, well, people, no. people are marching almost every weekend in Victoria about an issue about refugees mm. and mm. You know, other yeah. Group, yeah. How has this happened in Victoria? I
7: think a lot of it is to do with the power and influence of police unions and also uh, the political cycle around uh, governments so concerned about what 's on the front page of the local you know um, tabloid yeah. uh, i won 't mention its name but uh you know they're they're worried about that front page article, and uh, that seems to be driving a lot of these um knee jerk reactions to um you know to to isolated incidents which happen in the community. Somehow that gets, um, you know, uh, we get this broader sort of a um, law and justice approach which doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, there are a number of people that do go before the criminal justice system, before the police and the courts who, you know, become caught up in the criminal justice system and it just escalates from there. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So once you're engaged in the criminal justice system, there's a really high chance that you will actually go back into the criminal Mm -hmm. justice system. And we now have systems policy systems which kind of um, promote that. We have a promotion system for p- getting people back into the criminal justice system.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the matters that's raised in, um, in that, that article, I'm sorry, I didn't write down the title of the article in the LEAP newsletter, but they just talk about uh, that black people were stopped and searched for drugs, this again is in the UK, at more than nine times the rate of white people mm. and that was 2016 2017 stats prosecuted for drug offenses at more than 8 times the rate of white people in 2017 mm. and comprised a quarter of those convicted of cannabis cannabis possession yes. cannabis which is yep. you know legal now in in some mm. states and states and in Canada mm. and then end up in jail and despite making up less than 4% of the population. Mm. I mean, it clearly is, you know. Yeah, and,
7: of... and look, um, as I said before, police tend to focus on, you know, the, that kind of more visible, on the street, perception type p- mm. policing around drugs. So we have, for example, high levels of law enforcement around um. Music festivals, um, dance parties, that type of thing, where police can have some some visible impact and Easy they can show pickings. they're doing their job. Easy pickings. Have kids brought,
0: out having a good time. Low-hanging fruit. Yeah, scary the, people, that's kids. Right,
7: that's right. Yeah. Um, and the same could be said for, um, for example, drugs and driving. Um, you know, there's no evidence that drugs are causing more accidents, but... It's an opportunity for police to target something which is quite quite visible and gets, I guess, a lot of exposure in terms of the media, and they can be seen to be doing their job, whether it, whether it's actually working on it. Not, because there's no tests for impairment. We don't test people for impairment. All we do is say, oh, look, you've got a trace of a drug. You may have used that drug a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago. You're going to be prosecuted for that, which is just an example, again, of the stats game, the numbers game, which we see often in policing of drugs.
0: Yeah, mm. but which numbers? Like, how, you know, I mean, there are other numbers, which are ones we just talked about as well, which could be, as you said earlier, you know, what's getting reported. Mm. So we aren't hearing about social injustice. No, we're, no, we're hearing the other kind of stats about, that's right. yeah, that's right. the number so, of arrests and you know right. that kind of thing. So yeah, and mm. you
7: would really, rarely read about the impact in terms of violence. If you read um, articles, for example, drive-by shootings, um, arson, you know, all of that sort of stuff that's going on, you might get a line that says, oh, the suspect is a person who's known to be connected to motorcycle clubs. Or, you know, well, this person has mm. been arrested, you know, has a history of this, 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 and also drug involvement. You'll never read, very rarely, that this was motivated by the drug trade. That's mm. what's motivating a lot of this. Yeah.
0: So, Greg, I think we're, we're going to have to stop And there. We've covered a lot of territory this morning. I think <laughs> almost uh, every issue we've discussed could be a whole program in itself. But thank you so much for coming in. I really you. appreciate it. No. Lovely to have you Thank you, Greg. Thanks yeah. very much, guys.
7: Thank you. Yeah. Okay.
0: Now last week, again last Thursday, last Thursday is coming up big this morning, a lot of things happened last Thursday, June 13th, the Queensland Department of Environment and Science approved the Adani Water Management Plan, and of course we've been watching this issue closely over the last month and wondering about what what might happen. Um, It gave the the Carmichael mine, proposed for the Galilee base in the green light to proceed, But in approving Adani's water management plan, the Queensland Department of Environment and Science has ignored the concerns of traditional owners, environmental activists, and also advice from many scientists. Associate Professor Matthew Carl from RMIT and his colleague Adrian Werner from Flinders Uni have a paper in the conversation came out on on Friday, looking at the implications of the approval of the mine. So Matthew joins us on the phone now. Uh, welcome back to 3CR, Matthew.
3: Hi, how are you going?
0: I'm well, thanks, and uh, thanks for getting up early and coming on no the show. Yeah, so I'm just well, I'm just going to go right to your paper and and the question that you start with. What did the Queensland government just approve?
3: So the Queensland Department of Environment and Science approved a plan which Adani have had to prepare, um, which covers how the um, effect of the mine on groundwater-dependent ecosystems um, will be managed. So when we say groundwater dependent ecosystems, it means things like um, springs and any streams nearby to the mine site which depend upon some flow of groundwater um, currently.
0: I see. So you also pointed out that the, the, the Dongma, Dongmabula Springs complex could be destroyed. Uh, it could become extinct as a result of the activities of the Carmichael Mine. Why is that?
3: Yeah, so the the Dumabula Springs, it's um, a series of about 100 or more wetlands which um, occur within sort of about 8 to 10 kilometres from where they are planning to dig the mine. Now, to put that in context, the mine itself, um, according to the original plan, is something like 30 or 40 kilometres in length. Um, and has to dig down a couple of hundred meters into the, um, into the geology in order to extract all of the coal that they want to mine. Um, so in that context, the size of the mine, the, um, distance away from these springs is, is not very far.
0: How many kilometers, um, do we know how many kilometers we're talking about? Like how close?
3: Yes, the, the springs complex is, um, about eight to ten kilometers away oh, no. from the, the planned mine. Oh. Now, um, the, um Adani and the consultancies that did um, their modelling for them about what impact the mine would have on groundwater um, believe that the impact on the springs will be small. Um, however, uh, there are a number of big assumptions that they've made in coming to that conclusion um, and also some errors that were um, just some very basic straight-up errors that were pointed out by um, the CSIRO um, in the lead-up to this decision to approve the um, the plan. Um, so it's pretty clear, um, if you look carefully at CSIRO's um, advice to both the federal and state governments over the last couple of months, that um, there's been an underestimation of the um, impacts that the mine will have uh, on the springs. And um, in addition to those sort of basic errors that are made in the modelling, um, there are further um, scientific gaps that, that um, you know, me and my colleagues have pointed out recently, uh, which again I think would um, you know, heighten the risk that, uh, that these springs will dry up um, once the mining gets to a certain level um, in the system.
0: And I know Adani has been receiving advice from scientists for over, uh, so I think, around six years uh, around the springs. Have they done made any changes to their plan uh, to take account of that advice from scientists?
3: Very, very minor change, and the the, the key thing here is that um, any sort of additional work to address the problems in their modelling of the springs doesn't have to come until um, two years after the mining starts to commence.
0: Oh dear, um, that's, so there's, that's there's worrying, con- I think.
3: Yeah, and and look, so we've seen, um, yes,
0: um,
3: oh. the science of Adani's groundwater modelling and the, the sort of science around what impact it will have on these nationally significant springs um, really was under the spotlight in 2014-2015 when there was a court case brought against the company, um, you know, challenging the um, approval of the mine um, in the land court in Queensland. And so a lot of these issues about um, you know, problems with the modelling and um, scientific gaps that needed to be filled were pointed out at that time.
0: So they've had lots of time to address those they've concerns. They've
3: lots of time, lots of time, yeah. Um, and so the, the sort of the discussions that, that happen sometimes in the media about, you know, are the government um, holding things up and, you know, yeah. um, uh, really don't report the full story there because I think, you know, the, the Department of Environment and Science in Queensland um, have been asking for a long time for these issues to be addressed. Um and
0: so you know, so enormous arrogance on Adani's part not to actually do anything about it. It sounds like they're just not listening, they're not interested.
3: Yeah, it's just a lack of commitment to really do the basic underlying science, to um, yes. make an honest assessment of what the, the the most likely impacts are going to be. So they've they've sort of hidden behind the uncertainty I would say. Yeah. Um, refuse to refuse to, you know, um, address, you know, some fairly basic um scientific problems in their modelling. Um, and, you know, continue to pressure the government, the community, and, and you know, go out there in the media and, and try and uh, put pressure to, to get things approved and only commit to anything after they start uh, digging, the, uh, digging the pits for this mine.
1: And, Matthew, is it true that, you know, in this, I guess you mentioned that they went to the courts, but in the last 24 months, there have been about 18 versions of the plan? And, and, and if so, what plan was approved, essentially?
3: Um, So I think it was not quite 18. I think the plan that was approved was version 12B, perhaps. So they stopped going, you know, they didn't want 13 for some reason. They went 12B. So.
0: Okay. Jeez. Oh, my God. So we, that's something we're, we're working on, remembering things like this here at Monday Breakfast. So plan 12B. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Matt, I'm wondering um, what, you know, why, why is the complex so important? And if extinct if extinction actually occurs, what will be the effect on the environment?
3: Well, first of all, the, the you know, one of the, you could argue, most important effect um, of the extinction of these springs is the destruction of culture and the destruction of connection to country. Um, so the Wangan and Jagalingu people are, are on the public record having said that they believe the loss or the extinction of these springs um, is the destruction of their culture. It's it's the, the, the breaking of their connection to this land. Um, and so, you know, a loss of that is is absolutely catastrophic um, in terms of its its impact on culture and um, you know that continuous connection to the landscape that um, that those indigenous people have had with this area. Secondly, um, the springs, and this is true of a lot of the um, spring complexes that are out there in in the interior of Australia, um, really have extraordinary ecological significance, and this is because they're basically the only water source for miles
0: um, yeah this is what i thought i mean farmers are farmers going to be affected
3: well first of all ecologically um the you know the springs support what we call endemic species so it's ecological communities and species that literally found nowhere else on earth so that's the first thing there's multiple species that that only exist in the dungwabula springs complex nowhere else on earth um and so you know that that's a Pretty significant um,
0: effect. A- very significant. To say yeah. that
3: we're, you know, we're going to just wipe out species that um, are only are only living in this area. Um, in terms of impact on other water users, um, yes, there are concerns that people who have bores um, in aquifers, you know, that are that are um, sourcing water from these same systems as the springs, um, may experience some, you know, um, loss of ability to to get water out. Um, there's also a question of the mine itself once it changes the geological structure by, you know, doing things like um, underground mining which fractures the, uh, fractures the rock above and causes subsidence that, that this can do things like enhance the connection between the mine site and then, um, you know, aquifers further away from the mine um, and that could have an effect on some people who, um, you know, um, access water through
0: bores um so okay. so uh, sorry to interrupt but we are running out of time unfortunately but it sure. sounds like the potential for an impact is is, uh, is very real very concerning um how did you yeah. feel when you heard the news on Thursday
3: Um oh, I guess as as you know someone who's um trying to provide good scientific advice to the government as we did in this case so we flew up to to Queensland to the department and and raised these concerns in meetings with the the head of the Department of Environment and Science um so you want that advice to be listened to and, and taken into account in the decision um so from that professional perspective it's disappointing when um you know you know that there is science out there that's probably not being um listened to or properly incorporated into a decision um but you know, uh, again, as a professional in the field, you keep keep doing your best and providing that advice. Um,
0: mm. And yeah. and indeed, you do. And the paper that you and your colleagues be- before the conversation paper, the paper, the statement from concerned scientists was incredibly helpful and incredibly precise in you know what the issues actually are. So Matt, thank you so much for getting up early and coming. I don't know if this is early for you, of course, everyone's a bit <laughs> different. But uh, thank you for joining us on three CR this morning on Monday breakfast. and uh, My pleasure. Ho- And hopefully we'll have you back again to hear more in the future.
3: Excellent. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. So that... Wondering what that sound is. It's the sound of the black throated finch, which is <laughs> another, which is one of the creatures, uh, one of the birds whose environment will be affected by this mine. So there's, they sound, it sounds just beautiful.
4: Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward donate. Power
3: Radical Radio
1: just uh obviously we, when we had Greg on, we were so uh you know enthralled in the conversation that we forgot to uh, say a big thank you to Will for sending through a text message and reminding us about a- auntie Tanya day's family who were petitioning the state government to abolish the uh, the offense of public drunkenness um in Victoria. Aboriginal people make up 25% of arrests for public drunkenness, despite only being 0.8% of Victoria's population. So, yeah, yeah. Th-
0: Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening and also thanks for contributing. Yeah.
4: Um, so we've had yeah jam-packed show already. You're listening to 3CR. And now we're going to speak to Shirley from IPAN. Um, but firstly, Dean and Judith, did you know much about the
0: Genoa Strikes happened in Italy. I saw that IPAN um, had sent out a a press release about it, and I thought that's really interesting. But I'm sure you can tell us more.
1: I didn't, but I just know know that we had Oman at the start of the day, now we're focusing on Yemen. Yes.
4: So the dock workers in um, northwest Italy in May went on strike and refused to load weapons on a Saudi ship, which was destined for war and on the people of Yemen. And their message was, well, from what I understand, open the ports to people, close them to weapons and that they will not be complicit in what's happening in Yemen. Um, so they've banded together and they went on strike. And Shirley Winton from IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, is um, is here to talk to us a little bit more about that. So hello, Shirley, you there? Uh, yes,
6: good morning. Hi. Good morning. Thank
4: morning. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. So, can you um, can you firstly just go into a little bit more detail, uh, just briefly, about what IPAN's mission is?
6: Okay, so firstly, good news story, first <laughs> um, So IPAN is a broad network of peace, um, anti-war community organisations and unions campaigning for an independent and peaceful Australian foreign policy, not tied to any big powers' global interests like the US and we're advocate, advocating for the removal of um, all foreign military bases, um, US Marines in Darwin, and ending Australian involvement and support for US global wars. Some of our affiliates are advocating for Australia to end the US-Australia military alliance, which is the really the only and the main threat to Australia's peace and sovereignty. Mm. So, thank you. For- Sorry,
4: I keep interrupting you. Go on.
6: That's all right. No, no, no. Um, So based on that, we were particularly um, interested and excited about the actions of the Genoa dock workers on um, 20th of May, Um, and we sent them a message of um, solidarity, Um, or we sent the union and the workers a message of solidarity. Mm. So um, basically... Um, as you have outlined, um, on the 20th of May, the Genoa dock workers initially refused to load weapons on the Saudi Arabian freighter Bari Yambul, um, which were going to be used, are, going, are continuing to be used against the people of the Iman. Um, and the weapons included drones and propellers for cannons. For cannons. And as you say, they called, the, the unions and the community called for the Italian government. To open the boards to people and close to weapons and they said we won't be complicit in the um in the daily killing um of um, tens of thousands of people um in this war um and that will and that we meaning the the unions and the community will not be complicit in the arms trade mm. and the fear senior man
4: mm. and um have they seen any responses for the strike in on may the 20th
6: Yes, yes, well, they succeeded. Um, so, um, interestingly, um, before this strike, um, in response to the public outcry, including the unions, the um, to the shipment um, of weapons, the Italian government promised that only humanitarian aid would be loaded or shipped. Um, however, the dock workers didn't trust the government because um, no-one really knew what was in containers, which containers um, carried so called human aid, and which were carrying weapons. So they refused to load any cargo on their Saudi Freighter on, on the Saudi Freighter. Um, the local community also, that's the community in Genoa, came out in support and they had a blockade um, outside the port and also on the docks outside the Saudi freighter. And um, the, the the Genoa workers a pledge that, or the dock workers, pledged that um, they will not go back to work until the, the freighter, the Saudi freighter, leaves the port of Genoa. And this forced the um, freighter to leave the port of Genoa without loading any of the uh, any of the weapons that were destined um, for the war in Yemen. So it's a really good story.
4: That's amazing. Yeah. So they succeeded in their mission.
6: Absolutely. Mm. And they're not the only ones who succeeded in, in that. Um, maybe I should go back a couple of steps, but um, the, this, this freighter, and this is not the only freighter that's carrying weapons to sort air Arabia mm. to be used against Yemen, but this is one example. Um, the, so the loaded um, freighter, Bari Yembu, started its journey at Sunny Point in the United States, and which is the biggest uh, military terminal. Um, in the world, and it continued to England and then Belgium where more arms were loaded. However, uh, when it reached the port of Le Havre, I think it was on the 12th or 14th of May in France, it was met with protesting workers and communities.
4: And um, this is in France, so they were they the were striking too?
6: So, so they went on strike as well mm. um, and succeeded in um, enforcing the, the freighter to leave without loading the um, the weapons, which then proceeded to the port of uh, Genoa, where again it was um, prevented from loading the weapons, and then went on to Spain. And our understanding is that they were forced to go to some remote um, military outposts, um, uh, inaccessible to the public, um, where some of these um, where some of these weapons were being
4: shipped to. Mm. And did this shipping line, um, was that discovered by, by journalists or something like that? Or is it well known that this is a line that Saudi Arabia uses and these are the, the well-known countries that are selling to Saudi Arabia?
6: Well, it was a combination of both. In fact, there's a couple of journalists in France that are being charged with um, um, leaking information um, about um, the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia and they're facing trial and a possible um, jail sentence.
0: Activity. This is sounding like Australia, surely.
6: <laughs> when, when people who
0: leak are <laughs> taken... Well,
6: that's right. And isn't that kind of, you know, you, you know, war and and oppression, fascism, that tend to go hand in hand. That's been the history. Mm. So the first casualty of any war in any war is the truth. The mm. so truth is being suppressed and it's happening right around the world. And that's why this action by the Genoa workers and the Oluha port workers and the communities, the broader communities, are so important and so critical.
4: Um, And and is Australia selling arms to Saudi Arabia?
6: Yes, yes, Australia is is selling arms. In in, in 2018, Um, the government set up a defence export facility uh, with 3.8 billion funds um, offering to arms manufacturers, they're so mainly multinationals like Lockheed Martin, um, Francis Tiles, um, Northrop Group, Groom and the, first, the top five weapons manufacturers and exporters. Mainly, most of them are American. Um, so, the the um, the 3.8 billion being allocated to arms manufacturers um, that are operating in Australia. Uh, for the export, for the manufacture and export of arms to Saudi Arabia. And we had that recent um, revelation of the um, the previous government, well, the, the current government, the, the previous Minister for Defence, mm-hmm. um, um, making a deal um, with the Saudi Arabian government for the export of arms. So uh, it, it is it is really, um, it is very significant, but I should say that it's not, ju- you know, that Australian um seafarers, the wharfies seafarers also have a great history of refusing to load and crew boats, ships, bound um, for war. So in 1938, people might have known the Delfrim strike in Port Campbell, where the um, port workers' uh, wharfies, went on strike for three or four months, refusing to load pig iron, which was being exported to Japan for the production of war- weapons in mm. the war. Um, and then also during the Vietnam War, the waterside workers and seafarers refused to load in cruise ships, the Jeopardy and Bunaru, which were destined with arms for for Vietnam. So there is a history. Um, the Genoa the dock workers have also had that similar history. So it's positive and it's, you know it gives us hope and also encouragement.
4: Yeah, it's a really positive story, and mm. and as you said, it gives everybody encouragement and just is a message to anybody that you you can affect change and yeah, if you're a community and you can band together and go on strike together, then your voice can be heard.
6: Well, that's right, and I, and another significant um event that took place in in France in Lourdes before the um the freighter docked at the port. Um, is that the, um, the, the community together with the unions there um, um, launched a legal bid to stop the freighter from loading weapons in the port that's in port of Le Havre in France. That they did not succeed with that legal challenge. Mm. But the strike action by dock, dock workers at Le Havre, together with the community protest, did succeed in stopping the loading of weapons. And I think there's a big message in that as well about about the, you know, reliance on on going through the course um, with you know, rather than um, mobilising communities and workers and doing that grassroots um, education.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're going to have to um, wrap it up, unfortunately, for now, but is there any last things that you just want to um, yes. say regarding IPAN?
6: Yes, yes. Um, Look, we've got two very important events happening in Victoria on the, in Melbourne on the 4th of July, which is America's Independence Day. We're holding a public forum. That's ours in Victoria holding a public forum titled Keep Australia Out of US Wars and mm-hmm. it's, um, for our independence from the US. And some of the key speakers will be um, Richard Tanter, Vince um, Caputera and um, Fiona uh, McCandless. Um, that's a really important um, event and um, we'll be calling, we're saying or asking question of, um, you know, how the, um, the US bases, how the US Marines in Darwin and how the US-Australian Alliance are, uh, are the threat to our peace to Australia's peace and security. So that's on 4th of July at the, at the Trade Hall. And then on the, in August, the 2nd to the 4th of August, there's a major national conference, IPAN National Conference in Darwin called um, Australia at the Crossroads for um, time for, again, time for um, independent foreign policy. And we're having key speakers there. Now, if people are interested in finding out more about it, I know there's not much time, mm. um, you can um, you can visit our website, that's www um, um, ipan.org.au and all the information
4: is there. That's great. Thank you so much. And we'll have a link to IPAN um, on our Monday Breakfast page on 3CR Community Radio Station as well. Um, Thank thank you you so much, Shirley, for speaking with us this morning and hope those events go well and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Um, Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Okay. That was Shirley Winton from IPAN. Just a quick wrap-up of the show. At 7.15, we
0: listened to now, David Olney. That's right. Yeah, from yeah, and talking about what's going on in the Gulf of Oman and in the Middle East and, and the tensions between uh, the U.S. And, Saudi, uh, and Iran. Sorry, tensions between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Iran Probably and how the oil tanker. Yeah, and how Saudi's kind of coming on board with that.
1: And then at 7.30, we had Greg Denham. On yeah. board talking to us about I guess a little bit of a mind shift from from leap with the uh, against prohibition to action partnership, which is great focusing more on what police can do within the community
0: yeah and uh, I, actually I just also um should have said that um I'm sorry I'm just gonna losing losing track <laughs> no, no, of my right. brain this morning I think its a big one
1: <laughs> and at <laughs> eight we had Matthew Carroll before you come yeah back, thank And you. we just had Shirley
0: Winton then for my pants. Yes, and, Matthew was talking and uh, what well. I did lose track of and did want to say was David only is is from, he's a senior analyst from Sage International Australia, so I wanted to acknowledge Sage International. Anyway, it's been a pretty full show. It's
4: been a full-on show.
0: And yeah. we'll be back next week. Oop,
1: I'll just say goodbye.
4: <laughs> 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital
2: community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, NIBS, at Trades Hall, You can check them out at nibs.org.au and if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.
0: Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.